Hi, everyone. This is Shreya. Today is a special day because it marks the first episode of a new segment on Core IM called At the Bedside. I just felt like we couldn't call this podcast Core IM if we didn't have a space for the more complex conversations that are core to internal medicine, and in fact, core to all of medicine. These are the not-so-straightforward situations that happen, for example, in the family meetings or in the team rooms. I just want to preface, though, how hard of an undertaking these episodes were and are, because unlike putting together a five pearls on a clinical topic, a lot of these topics don't have a right answer or a step-by-step guideline. So some of these episodes will delve into personal stories and some with more messy topics that don't have very clear takeaways, but are still really important to explore. And with that, I will leave you in the trusted hands of the hosts of At the Bedside. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Marco Hedlund, an internal medicine resident at NYU. I'm Jafar Almondri, a hematology oncology fellow at UCLA. And I'm Tamar Schiff. I also train in internal medicine, and I'm especially interested in medical education and bioethics. And with that, Margot will lead with an experience that was pretty thought-provoking for her. This episode, I want to come to a better understanding of the patients that we struggle to take care of, patients who are sometimes called difficult. Difficult means something different for everyone, but for me, this is a patient that I took care of in July of my second year. He has decompensated cirrhosis, alcohol use disorder, and former opiate abuse currently on methadone, and he comes in every few weeks requiring a large volume paracentesis and a large dose of benzodiazepines to keep him from going into delirium tremens. Unfortunately, he lives on the streets and has no access to a bathroom when he leaves the hospital. Consequently, when he is discharged, he doesn't take the lactulose that would keep his mind clear or the diuretics that would prevent his ascites from reaccumulating. I was already feeling overwhelmed from the new set of responsibilities I had picked up in my transition from intern to resident and found myself alternating between terror that he was getting sicker and despair that I didn't know how to make him meaningfully better. On top of that, we butted heads about his treatment plan. I reduced his dose of methadone because he became quite sick with SBP, and because every time we spoke, he could barely keep his eyes open as we were talking. At the end of his hospital stay, we discharged him back to the street, knowing full well that it was only a matter of time before he came back. I'm sure that many of you listening have taken care of patients who evoke the same feelings of helplessness, frustration, and frankly despair that I have experienced in taking care of my difficult patients. I wanted to know how providers found meaning in taking care of these difficult patients. I wanted to know how they worked through the obstacles inherent in taking care of patients who struggle from the sequelae of poverty, mental illness, addiction. How they found meaning when struggling against these forces that are so much larger than us, and very likely to overcome so much of what we try to do. I wanted to know how they could keep coming back to work day after day, taking care of these patients with the respect and the dignity that all of our patients deserve. I wanted to know how people adjusted their expectations of success, how they work towards what, by necessity, are sometimes a different set of goals for patients who may not get better in a traditional sense. I wanted to explore what it means to be a good doctor and how we often have to put aside our own intentions and our own ego when we take care of patients who we can't heal. 
So I reached out to medical students, co-residents, and attendings that I had worked with, people who I had come to look up to for being level-headed and compassionate clinicians. My plan was to summarize all of their answers and see how those answers might change as people progress through their careers. But the more interviews I did, the more I heard people telling me how they themselves had changed while caring for the patients that they struggled with. They told me how their difficult patients had helped them understand flaws in our medical system, helped them understand what it was in themselves that brought out an emotional response when things didn't go well. These interviews became really, really honest as people told me about their challenges and their triumphs, and in turn this episode became something more than I was expecting. To quickly outline the episode, Tamar and Joffer will go into the answers people gave to the three questions that I asked. Tamar will take us through the first question, which explores what kind of patients we find difficult and why. Joffer will lead us through the second question, which explores how we adjust our expectations and what to strive for. And Tamar will take us through the third question, exploring what we've learned from these patients. I don't expect all listeners to come away from this with the same conclusions that I have, but I do hope to plant a seed. I hope to convince you to spend some time thinking about what you've learned from your difficult patients. I'm starting to think that my personal concept of meaning in medicine is inextricable from adversity, and I hope to show you why. We're going to share just some of the many honest and really thoughtful responses we heard. They provoked a lot of discussion and a lot of emotions for us. And to our listeners, we really want to know what here resonates with you and your experiences. So we started by asking our colleagues, what does the term difficult mean to you? What makes a patient difficult? And the first sort of theme that emerged, and this one's not really going to surprise anyone, was that a difficult patient was one who was vocally argumentative or for any variety of reasons just didn't agree or allow for the treatment plan. Let's start with Allison Perlman, who is a fourth-year medical student heading to residency in OBGYN. Um, one as a clerkship student on my medicine rotation who um, was very fearful of the medical establishment and also had a, a decent amount of psychiatric comorbidity um, that kind of, I think, obstructed his understanding of what was going on. Um, but I think that this patient, we as a team felt to be very difficult because he would refuse, uh, recommended interventions or agree and then change his mind or split, um, between the different personalities of the team. And so I think that was different because we felt like the patient himself was a barrier to providing what we felt was the kind of optimal medical care that we could. And difficulties in communication were mentioned over and over again. Another example was how tough it can be when cultural backgrounds come into play. So often it's the cultural differences with our patients that we think of as potentially making encounters more challenging. We also wanted to share this interesting perspective from Dr. John Wong, a hospitalist at Bellevue Hospital, who told us about how sometimes relating to your patient's cultural background, seeing yourself in the patient or his family can also be a barrier of sorts. This was an elderly Korean man, a very loving family, who had just had undergone a, an elective surgery two years earlier and had suffered a terrible series of complications 
that had basically sent him into a terminal spiral of debility and deterioration and you know, frequent bounce, uh, bounce backs between rehabs, home, and in the hospital. And I remember when he came in, you know, realizing right away that this would be an admission where we would have to start to prepare his family, his wife, and his two daughters for the, with the knowledge that he was kind of he was uh, approaching the last he was in the last stages of, of his life. And I remember dealing with their reaction to this. And I, I guess my answer to your question is: it's cases in which I feel myself exhibiting countertransference. Because so I'm Korean. There are a lot of parallels, I think, between my dad and the patient I was taking care of, between how his family members were reacting in this situation and how I think my family members would react. Just themes that resonate with me, you know, guilt, shame, missed opportunities, things like that. And I was, it's difficult, number one, because I don't feel that way with everyone I take care of. And so maybe I just wasn't prepared to, to take care of a patient that I guess was so reminiscent of my own family situation. And then I think, you know, your sense of professionalism and objectivity as, as a doctor, it's, it's very important you use it as a shield. Let's change gears just a bit away from difficult communication. Many interviewees also emphasize that difficult patients are those that lead you to feel like you have some sort of inability or deficiency to form this ultimate positive therapeutic relationship that maybe could have made everything go smoothly. An important distinction we heard recurrently underscored was that difficult patients are rarely truly difficult themselves. Rather, it's the encounters with these patients that we find so tough. Meaning part of what is difficult is that aspects of these interactions bring up really hard emotions that force us to reflect on ourselves and our own performances. Dr. Darcy Banco, a PGY-1 in internal medicine, described a really poignant example of this, specifically in taking care of patients with chronic pain. Something I've recognized about myself is a lot of patients who have chronic pain or have um, pain that is not well managed are really difficult for me um, to to deal with. Like I have like a very visceral reaction sometimes to patients who who are in pain. Um, I think that's kind of twofold. One is that we don't have a lot of good ways to treat pain in medicine. I mean, we can give medications and um, to a certain extent, but you know, there's, there's always tolerance that develops and giving pain medication is never enough. Um, and I think that we don't have a great way to treat like the suffering that goes along with pain. Um, and I don't feel as equipped to do that in an inpatient setting um, as I would do maybe in an outpatient setting. And they're also very, I don't want to use demanding because I think that has a derogatory connotation, but have a lot of needs um, and require a lot of attention because they're in a significant amount of distress. Um, and I don't always know how to fix that. And that's very draining for me and leaves me very unsatisfied and it leaves them unsatisfied. It's so hard to know a patient is frustrated and just uh, such a bad feeling to feel like you're the cause of that frustration. In this way, maybe part of what is challenging in difficult encounters is how they threaten our self-conceptions as physicians. They can almost question the strains that we've identified in ourselves. Maybe it's fostering rapport or creating this very caring atmosphere. As Dr. Milna Rufin, a PGY3 in internal medicine, said, I have always really like felt that I 
can kind of slow people down and get on their level. And when I can't do that, um, it, it can be really hurtful to my sense of myself um, and my sense of my ego as a physician and my sense of like who I who I am and who what I can bring to the table because I always thought of myself as a really good communicator. A final really meaningful and I think big takeaway from hearing responses to this question was that these insecurities or the worry about being ineffective, it importantly really spans all levels of training and practice. Dr. Barbara Porter is an experienced attending in primary care and hospital medicine. She described a patient that stuck out to her as especially difficult. This patient, she told us, has multiple medical problems, including untreated bipolar disorder, and has presented many times with physical symptoms of her medical problems, as well as those of somatization. She also has some real, real medical problems, serious medical problems. And so, um, so I'm in this constant inner dialogue, uh, as I'm listening to her about, is this real? Is this not real? And then what does even real mean? I don't know what real means. I, I, there's a, there's a loud inner voice critiquing criticizing the way that I feel about her, criticizing the way that I'm taking care of her, criticizing, um, yeah, just thinking that I, I should, at this point in my career, I should be able to rise above the way I feel when I take care of her. And I, 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 I haven't been able to do that. We then went on to talk about what it means to find a good outcome when working with difficult patients. When I was thinking about the patients who I struggled with, Many times it feels like it boils down to the patient wanting something I can't give them or me wanting to do something that they have no interest in doing. We get to this logistical impasse where none of our goals are lining up. And the resentments and the frustrations are starting to pile up on both sides. I still want the same outcomes for these patients, but surviving these encounters has meant adjusting my expectations about the aspects of care that usually give me pride and joy in my work. So we asked the question, what do we actually work for when our normal markers of success can't be obtained? How do we reconcile and transform disappointment into opportunity? We spoke with Dr. Dave Ellenberg, a critical care fellow, and he explains how he finds fulfillment even in just the process of working with patients and uncovering the roots of their struggles. It's got to be in the evaluation of the patient and what the patient thinks, what the patient feels, and what the patient wants. But sometimes doing a good job means taking or metabolizing what the patient feels would be best for him or her and weighing that with the medical reality. And that conversation is, is also one that's really interesting to me and that I can find very, very rewarding. Almost everyone we spoke with felt disappointed by the limits they faced trying to develop a therapeutic relationship. But many of them felt that just by adjusting their expectations – they found manageable goals that made these encounters more satisfying, whether it was just getting that patient to show up for a clinic appointment or stay engaged with care, even when they didn't accept most of what was being offered. I got to bring it back to that person in front of me and think about them in terms of where they're at in stages of change. And that reminds me of where to keep my aims. It's just about getting that person grounded in the basics. Dr. Matt Cladney, a primary care attending, reflects on his time working with the homeless in San Francisco. This is something I learned before I became a doctor. I worked in the, uh, for the Department of Public Health in San Francisco doing homeless outreach um, and advocacy work. And one of the docs 
or actually one of the nurses there, um, her whole lesson to me was that your goals completely change when you're working with, with different populations. And her whole goal, she did primarily HIV care for homeless individuals in, in San Francisco. And her whole thing was, you just got to get them to come back. That was for her. That was a win, not prescribing the medicine, not getting lab work. Her whole thing was, you just got to come back and creating a space that is a place where these people whose lives are incredibly complex and incredibly chaotic can come back. And her whole thing was, if we do that, eventually we can get what is considered a traditional win, which is eventually getting them to, uh, eventually getting them to engage in care and then eventually getting them to start taking heart and then eventually getting them to have a low viral load. This idea of managing our expectations as providers is an important one and one that probably should have been more obvious to me since I'm frequently trying to manage the expectations that patients have when they're dealing with serious illnesses. Patients get frustrated with being sick and they reflect this anger back on me as their doctor and then I hit them back with this label of the difficult patient almost as some kind of retaliation. Look, it's unrealistic for me to believe that people are going to be happy with everything I'm telling them. And sometimes being in the line of fire as a doctor, I should actually expect to feel some collateral damage from patients struggling to come to terms with their illness. A lot of what we tell patients is sad, and some people just react to the sadness with anger or becoming combative with the treatment plan, which I see as their attempt at controlling the uncontrollable. When things start breaking down, it's helpful to just take a full stop and try and reorient the conversation around things that matter to that person in front of you. Not only to diffuse things, but to get to understand that person better. In this quote, Dr. Darcy Benko comes back to explain how her process of seeking out her patient's definition of a good outcome. In an ideal world, like what I always like to talk to my patients about, particularly in the outpatient setting and like when I'm getting someone ready for discharge is, you know, what what are the things you like to do um, before you either came into this office or came into the hospital or had this medical problem? What were you able to do and like how has this illness affected you? What's my role in getting them back to where they used to be? Um, can they get back to where they used to be? If so, how? And if they can't, how do I manage those expectations? Ultimately, this idea of coming down from our strict definitions of health to what health means for this particular person reminds me of what it means to have respect for their dignity as individuals. It takes flexibility on our part and a willingness to take on another perspective when this person can't see ours. I had one attending who talked about it as sitting down in the dirt next to the patient. Maybe just listening to them is all we can do in that moment. and Maybe that's all we have to do. In any case, it's been helpful for me to be reminded that even when things don't turn out the way I would have hoped, there's always something meaningful to be found just in the act of offering ourselves to others. Dr. Colleen Farrell, a second-year internal medicine resident, shared her story of the homeless Jesus. And, you know, it really resonated with me when I was reflecting on what it means to live a life of service to others, especially like those difficult patients that most people would just write off. Being able to care for patients that are so-called difficult, um, for me, is a really spiritual question. Um, if I was raised Catholic, I don't particularly identify with Catholicism, but the, like, the stories of Christianity are very much part of my formation as a person. And in college, I read this article about this statue outside a church that was called Homeless Jesus, 
this church had basically this statue outside of it of a park bench with somebody sleeping on it who looked like a homeless person. And I don't know if there's something about the statue that identified it as Jesus or it was just named homeless Jesus. But it was, for me, really provocative, this idea that, like, Jesus would be someone who um, was an undocumented immigrant, a migrant, an asylum seeker. And some of the stories that I remember from Catholic school or church or wherever I heard them was Jesus caring for the lepers and for prostitutes. And so when I see our homeless patients, I see people who are using substances and struggling with addiction. I see people that society has neglected in so many ways. And I remember that statue and like have a very strong sense of that everyone is a child of God and that it's my job to serve them. And that like Jesus would clean people's feet. And like, that's a really beautiful thing to do. And you don't do it for gratitude, but you do it because it's compassionate and dignifying. And I think it dignifies even myself as a human being to say that like nobody, there's nobody who's not worthy of love. For me, the spiritual aspects of medicine have come out most in my time working with dying patients and their families. These are also the times, unfortunately, when I've seen the worst breakdowns of communication and relationships between doctors and patients or their families. And we've all probably been around that difficult family member or struggled with a patient who just doesn't get how sick they are. And their lack of acceptance comes out as distrust for their providers, and it breeds all kinds of friction. In most of these cases, we as doctors know we don't have any real control over what's happening to the patient. Dr. Barbara Porter comes back to describe how we can find satisfaction just in helping people come to terms with illness. People may not accept our treatments, they may be angry at us, at themselves, with the universe or fate, but maybe over time we can help them get to a new and more peaceful understanding of their disease. I think I'm at the point in my career where I know that, it's funny, like I, I, I have a secret and that's that every one of my patients is going to die, you know, and, um, and I'm very accepting of that. That's going to be her outcome and my hope for her the good outcome for her would be that her level of uh, distress decreases before she dies. She's clearly got 10 or 15 years left in her life. And whether I'll be with her during those times, I don't really know. But I, you know, the good outcome um, would be for her level of distress to, um, to decrease before she before she leaves. So, so it's funny, like when I think of good outcomes, it's, it's really, it's like, it's, it's really about the patient's relationship to their pathology more than anything else. It's less their pathology than their relationship to their pathology, if that makes sense. For our last question, we asked our interviewees what they felt they learned from patients or patient encounters that were quote-unquote difficult. Some spoke about developing a slightly better understanding for the reason conflicts or really tense situations come up. Let's go back to Dr. Melna Rufin. I actually had this very difficult situation where it was actually not even a difficult patient so much as it was a difficult family encounter. Um, And we had this amazing woman who was a 
an amazing advocate for her husband, who was um, who was a patient who couldn't really speak on his own. He had a lot of deficits from having had a stroke, and she um, she just really was worried about him at some point being transferred his care to another facility where um, she was just worried about having enough, you know, suctioning for him, having the right kind of care that's going to keep him outside of the hospital and keep him healthy. Um, and she kind of came in guns blazing when she found out that he was going to be moved to another facility. And I had to find a way to kind of diffuse the situation, but also like, not just, not just so that we could just discharge him so that we could be happy with the discharge, but also so that I could get a sense of why she was so scared for him to leave. Like, so you know, the first thing I did when I sat down, I was like, I just want to know what your perspective is. And like, what do you know what's going on with him so far? And like, what makes you concerned about the next steps? Like, what do you think the next steps are? And what makes you concerned about them? And we talked for like an hour. And at the end, we were able to hug and all the nurses were actually very surprised because all of the interactions previous to that uh, with other providers, she'd been very gruff about. But I don't think that anybody just let her express her goals for him, you know, um, and what she thought his goals were. And I think for some people, it just takes time. I love Dr. Rufin's story, how listening diffused the situation. But in thinking about difficult encounters, it's also important to say that unfortunately, things don't always resolve quite this way, you know, with a, a happy ending. It's frustrating to admit, but it's also true. And we want to be honest about this. Even when we try our hardest and really employ great listening, open communication, it doesn't always end with this coming to a common ground. And there's still often frustration on both sides. And on that very positive note, let's turn to the whole use of the label difficult. I'm sure many of you listening have thought about this, as did many of our interviewees, really questioning the use of this label and realizing that at times it can say more about us as the medical establishment than it does about the patient or his behavior. As put by Dr. Colleen Farrell. I think I've learned that medicine is really controlling. Like we expect sort of bizarre behavior from our patients, like in both the inpatient and outpatient world, like the kinds of stuff that can get somebody labeled as a difficult patient, it doesn't really take much. <laughs> like it can take like raising one's voice, asking about side effects of a medication, wanting to see additional specialists, not taking a med for whatever reason, I mean, usually it takes more than that, but I've just heard in our medical culture that word tossed around or that vibe tossed around so loosely. I think it's the fact that we use that term and talk about patients in that way is more revealing of medical culture than the patients themselves. And again, this doesn't take away from the fact that many interactions are in fact, strained, that difficulty, that frustration, it's there and it's real. But it does maybe show how concrete these labels can sometimes wrongly be, a thought that Dr. Rufin also discussed. One thing I learned about difficult patients too is that somebody can be labeled as one and then you walk into the room and they're actually like quite lovely and you have to really um, remove that from your mind that this person is difficult. Like, because 
because every day is different. Um, and your moods are able to shift and, um, and patients are allowed to be angry one day and be totally nice the next day. And it's kind of, it's kind of sad when like this person is like labeled as a difficult patient, you know, cause then it, it kind of clouds what other providers are going to do when they walk in that room. Difficult patients or interactions teach us about ourselves as individual providers. What triggers us? What upsets us? Why counter-transference so naturally arises in so many situations? And maybe how to develop more realistic expectations. Dr. Darcy Banco said, They've certainly taught me a lot of patience too, and knowing when I need to maybe take a step back or take a deep breath and like check my own emotions before responding um, because they patients can bring up some real like visceral emotions sometimes. And I think just being cognizant of those and being aware and yeah, either taking a moment to yourself or um, redirecting or just figuring out strategies for how to manage that. So you can kind of get closer to like the doctor that we all aspire to be, but you know, every encounter isn't perfect and just learning how to ebb and flow with those um, encounters, I think is something that I've, I've learned from them is like patience with them and also like patience with myself. And finally, we'll turn back to Dr. Colleen Farrell on how quote unquote difficult patients can force us to re-examine some of our assumptions, some of the goals we set, and at times our notions of what makes for a good outcome. I think I've had to learn to recognize what I'm trying to get out of patient encounters for myself and kind of check that. I think in med school, so in medical school, on my internal medicine rotation, I took care of a patient who had endocarditis. Um, she used IV drugs. And I was like so excited to take care of this patient because I was like, oh my gosh, like this is my chance to like, care for somebody from this like who's like really vulnerable in society and I can really help her. And then like our interactions did not go well. And she like screamed at me. And then I was like so hurt by this. And the whole team was like, oh, she should never have treated you that way. And like, I was like wounded by this. And I think like, I get why it hurt, but it's taken me a long time to realize like it was never about me. And like, I was going into this interaction with probably a bit of a savior complex that like I was going to be this like profoundly compassionate empathic medical student who sat with her and understood why she used drugs and we would form this deep bond and the whole team would see how much I cared about her. But like looking back, like I went about it all wrong. And, and I think the more I've realized like you really just need to, listen to patients and believe them a bit more. Like, I think, I think if I had recognized that this, that patient in medical school was yelling at me, not, not maybe because of me per se, but because of all the other stuff she was dealing with. And I had just made space for those emotions and given her space to express them like something else could have happened. But instead, I was in this place where I took it really personally. And I get why I did. But I also see now that like I had a lot to sort through. And I think I was in a, a mindset of I want to help her, even I want to fix her, rather than I'm here to listen to her and serve her. Not serve her as in like the sense of like 
be her servant, but to be present and compassionate towards her um, and not make it about me. I wanted to close out the episode by revisiting the story of the patient that I mentioned at the beginning. I was rotating through the emergency department a few months ago and was working at 4 a.m. one night when my patient came back again, again with a distended abdomen, again with tremors from alcohol withdrawal, again with somnolence and subjective fevers. I I was surprised, not that he was back, but um, because he recognized me. He has seen so many providers, and honestly, I... I never thought his eyes were open enough for him to actually see me. As I eased the paracentesis needle into his abdomen, he thanked me for the care that I had provided him the last time. He told me, you doctors work so hard. I really appreciate everything you've done for me. I was struck by his story, and I, and I wanted to share his story, not because it sort of ends so neatly, not because he he thanked me. I think the reason he, he taught me so much of a, as a patient um, was because it kind of highlighted a few things that have really hit home for me. I was trying to figure out what we were doing for this patient um, because we couldn't get him into a shelter. He didn't want to go to a shelter. And like I mentioned before, that was effectively making all of our medical care temporary. And, and some would say ineffective. So I kept asking myself, like, what are we doing for this patient? What are we doing for this patient? And when he came back, I realized that what we were doing was treating him with respect. I realized when he, when he came back through the emergency room that, that there's a reason he keeps coming back. There are so many hospitals in this city. He could go to any of them, um, but he keeps coming back to us. He keeps coming back here. He keeps coming back here, even though like we're messing with his methadone dose and we're titrating down off the benzos, which he really, really doesn't like, um, but he keeps coming back. Patients living on the streets are um, are up against so much. And one one of the things that they're up against is the threat to their humanity. You know, people walk by, um, no one's paying attention to them. And, and I'm just glad that this patient felt like he had a place to come to where, where he felt respected, where he feels human. I wanted to wrap up with a few thoughts. I want to start off by thanking everybody that I interviewed for talking with me so honestly about a challenging topic. People shared evocative stories and discussed thoughts and emotions that they weren't always proud to have. And I think that this vulnerability is an important step towards letting us all come to a better understanding of these challenging issues. These conversations have stuck with me in a very enduring way. And my hope is that you as listeners feel empowered to have these conversations too. I also wanted to tell you what I've learned. I have a sense from my short time thus far in residency that when I talk about what gives me meaning in my work, it would be disingenuous to ignore the parts of my work that I find really difficult. My knee-jerk reaction when I think about what gives me meaning is the positive stuff, 
the good relationships that I have with my patients, or the instances of diagnostic decision-making I've been proud of, or attention to detail that makes a patient's hospital stay better, and addressing all the psychosomatic aspects of their care. And those are all really positive things, and things that bring me a lot of pride in my work. But I've also found that what has changed me the most as a person, and what I have learned the most from, has been conflict, and the parts of my work that I find emotionally or intellectually difficult. I've learned how to be more empathetic from some of my patients who were initially really antagonistic or rude, and then and then all of a sudden they'll have this break and they'll open up about the problems they've been through that make them act out against me and their other providers. I've learned so much about the social problems that plague our patients and our society by, for example, trying to discharge a patient with inadequate social support and no access to their medications. And I've learned so much about myself also from the way that I respond to and react to these conflicts. I personally feel as though it's made me a better person with others in my life. It's made me a lot more understanding of the adversity that my friends go through, and it's given me a much better sense of how to be a good listener to them, how to support them, and how to just be there for them, because sometimes I don't know how to solve their problems, and some problems just aren't solvable. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope you'll come away from this, maybe with a sense that your difficult patients are, are just as much a part of the journey as the easy ones. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. This episode may bring up more questions than answers, and we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. We were only able to share a sliver of the stories we heard from people we interviewed, and we know these topics can have many shades and nuances to them, so we'd welcome your experiences with difficult patients and what you learned from those stories. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, coreimpodcast.com slash contact. If you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts and we really appreciate your feedback. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, special thanks to our collaborators on this episode, our wonderful editor, Julia Scubige, our illustrator, Michael Shen, our music composers, Peter Mark Kendall and Gabriel Stern of Hickory Collective, endless technical support from Harit Shah, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.